Pull up a chair. This is Reader House Author Roundtable. I'm Alice Stackton Rossini. Everybody's got a story, but stories about people giving back and leaving the world a better place are pretty rare. Ronald Lockshin's husband, Stanley, was one of them. He chose to teach at a maximum four prison in Lancaster, California for 20 years, a job he loved so much he wrote about it. It took him 12 years to finish his book, Teaching Behind the Wire, My Teaching Experience in a California Maximum Prison. And the day after he approved the cover, he didn't wake up. He died of a massive heart attack. But his wife, Rona, is here to share his story. Um, He found his passion when he started working in the prison. And he was on every committee you could possibly think of for the prisoners, for his boys, is how he called it. His favorite expression was, they're there because they did a crime. They know they did the crime. They don't need to be reminded about it every 10 minutes, nor do they need to be praised because they did a crime. He fought for them, brought in the GED program to the California prison. He's the one who got the cap and gowns. He's the one who made sure that everyone passed the GED. He was wonderful. We we used to joke him that people used to kill to get into his class because... Only 27 could be in it at a time, and there were two classes, you know, a day. Did he believe that these prisoners could be reformed? That's a yes-no question. Okay. Um, some of these were lifers. They will never be out. He knew them from when he knew them, not from their past. Um, he would hand out 27 pencils, and at the end of the class, let's say 26 came back. And he would say, okay, there's one pencil missing. By tomorrow morning, I want 27. And they would be there. Other times, people would come up when they were allowed to smoke in the prison, and he was a pipe smoker. They'd go, Mr. Locke, can I have some tobacco? And he'd turn and he'd say, don't ever ask me that again, because I'll turn you in. He always said he was aware, never afraid. Yet there were times if there was going to be, let's say, a riot, one of the inmates would say to him, Mr. Locke, you might want to take tomorrow off. And he'd say, no. And they'd say, fine, but we have your back. But yet he was not one that would ever, ever bring in anything. There were teachers who on Valentine's Day would bring in candy. And he adamantly was against that. He just said, I'm always aware I'm never afraid. They trust me. I trust them. But I'm aware they're in prison. You know, I'm thinking he made a real difference in absolutely some people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. In the book, he was going from one class to another. And he had said to this class, I want you to write down what you learned from me in the last couple of years. 27, the most beautiful calligraphy you've ever seen and handwriting, penmanship. And basically, they all said the same thing in different words. But if it wasn't for Mr. Locke, or if Mr. Locke had been in my life earlier, I wouldn't be here. Because of him, I'm succeeding. Yes, I'm in prison, but I'm succeeding. I found myself. And there was another teacher, too, Gail. They just fought to make sure the programs stayed and not always taken away. He wanted people to be aware. So many correctional officers treat them like dirt. They want them to be reminded every two seconds that they're in prison and 
their correctional officers are superior. And Stanley would tell them, no one is supposed to be doing them favors. No one is supposed to be bringing them in anything. But they're human. They made a mistake. They know. They've killed people. They know. There's a program called Second Chance. Okay, it never, it's not taken off out here because he passed. But that was what he was trying to promote, to give them a second chance. Would he allow people to be put into arms way? No, ever, never. But he always felt they paid their price. What a great story, Rona. Thank you so much. You've made your husband proud. Almost a year after Lucretia Havlavity retired in Little Ferry, New Jersey, she published her first book entitled Sophia's Special Surprise, inspired by one of the most precious little people in her life. My granddaughter, uh, my second granddaughter, was born with Down syndrome. Okay. And she was playing with a little boy, and he didn't understand why she looked different. He wanted to know why she looked so funny. And instead of the mom and dad explaining it to him, they kind of giggled, and it kind of, like, upset me. So I thought I needed to write something. My granddaughter, Sophie, is older than Isabella. Isabella is the one with Down syndrome. And it explained to Sophia what Down syndrome is in a way that a kid would understand it. Tried to, like, put it like we were making a cake. And I said, remember when Grandma added uh, a cup of sugar too much, what happened? And she said, yeah, it went flat. And I said, right, that's because something extra was added that wasn't supposed to be in the recipe. You know, and I explained to her that in people, we have a recipe and it's chromosome. And when you have an extra chromosome, you get the same reaction. It's different. Like your dad still loved the cake. We still love Isabella. The story goes, Sophia's always wanted a pony. And her mom and dad had told her that she was getting a special surprise. So she thought... Oh, my God, she's usually like, Grandma, I'm getting a special surprise. I know it's a pony. I know it's a pony. And when she finally found out it was a baby sister and she had Down syndrome, she was like, but what about my pony? She said to her mother and father, we already have two girls. Why can't we get the pony? (laughs) Um, Now there's four little girls. I read it to them. And they were like, Grandma, is that really is that really us? I said, yeah. I said, it's you. You wanted the pony. Remember, you always wanted the name of Marshmallow. She goes, yeah, oh, they were like so excited because they were in the book and, and Isabella's pictures on the back. I put it in a drawer because it was just something I just wrote for them because, like I said, I was so choked up with the little boy playing with her and that reaction. And I didn't think anything of it. And then my husband, he kept saying, well, you should publish it. You should publish it. And I said, no, I just wrote it for the girls. And um, he sent it into page publishing. And that's how it got published. So now what's next? I did a book signing here with about 50 people. I've been going to different handicapped schools, and I donate books, and I've been doing readings, and I did three in Arizona. My daughter-in-law happens to work at one of the schools, and she donated the books for me to them, and then they had asked if I would love to come and read when I was down there to visit, and I said yes. That's great. To tell you the truth, I was so, I had gone to a board meeting and the board members all bought the book. Uh, kids' parents bought the book. I was like so over, I, I got really emotional. So I've been trying to donate them to whatever schools, um, handicapped schools. You're doing good work there, Lucretia. I hope so. All the proceeds are going to my granddaughter. She needs a therapy dog and that's what we're working towards, getting her the therapy dog. Okay. Well, then you will. I predict yeah. you will. 
I'd like to do one with her and her therapy dog so that they could understand why she could bring a dog to school and then the kids can't. Ah, that would be a good one. I say do it. Next up, Love and Do What You Will is a sexy thriller involving a minister, a priest, a young woman, love, betrayal. M. Michelle Dwyer wrote the book in 2011 and now she's re-released it. I started writing the book about two and a half years before it was published. And it was an idea that came to mind because I was married to a Lutheran minister. And I thought, okay, let's write something that has to do with the Lutheran faith that is to some extent a little bit scandalous, but not too scandalous. So I came up with this idea. It just came to me one day and I just had to write it. I mean, this book for me was something that was more or less an obsession. It was something that I had to put down on paper. And it was a story of a woman who falls in love with a man that she's not supposed to fall in love with. She ends up having that man's child, ends up marrying his brother, and eventually realizes when her husband dies that she cannot stand all this stress, all this pressure and everything that she has done. Because everything in the book is linked to the idea that she is actually not struggling so much against society as she's struggling against her own beliefs. Her beliefs about God, her puritanical upbringing, uh, the Lutheran faith in which she had grown. So it was more or less something that she had to battle. So it was really a battle between her and God. So she manages to leave the area where she was um, in upstate New York. She moved into New York City. She's tried to open her own business. She ended up marrying a successful attorney who ended up being, unfortunately, an alcoholic. And through that process, she learned a little bit more about herself. What I was trying to portray in the book is the fact that, and and it was a little bit of the puritanical standard that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, in the end, you're going to get punished. At the end of the book, she feels like she was being punished. But as the last sentence of the book reveals, the priest who comes to give her absolution asks, well, do you feel that God loves you? And there is an answer to that. So the point is that she was supposed to have learned over this period of her life that there is more to life than just everyday experiences that she had with the attorney, that she had with the Lutheran minister, that she had with his brother, her children, and all of that. So that was the idea behind it. Yes, I realize there are some sex scenes that are thrown in there for good measure, just to keep people entertained. Um, I did try to show that to some extent, both men, both the Lutheran minister and the attorney were to some extent abusive. One of them was physically, the other one might have been psychologically abusive. And that was really the reality behind the book. There seems to be uh, some blackmail here. And yes, her lawyer husband gets wrapped up in politics. And correct. There's many layers to this story. Yes, yes. And I wanted to delve into that because I felt that the book needed to have enough to attract all kinds of people to read it. But it's intended for people who like a thriller but also like romance. And at the same time, it was the type of book, I'd read a lot of John Grisham and a lot of Sidney Sheldon when I was growing up. And I felt that it, I wanted to have something that was a page turner. So the, the whole thing about blackmail and uh, Richard's wife, it's all tied to that. To make the book more juicy, to keep everybody involved and to bring in all these different aspects of everyday life that could happen. I have done some book signings. I have another one coming up on May the 5th. I have done another one at Apple Tree Books, which is also here in the uh, greater Cleveland area. 
I've tried to have a presence at local libraries. I've tried to have a presence at local events, anywhere there was a group of authors that was involved. I can feel your energy right through the phone, Michelle, man. Just keep going with what you're doing. Jeffrey Church reviews assets for a major bank where he gets 20 days paid time off a year. Just enough time to write his first novel entitled Europa. And I'll tell you, it's a galaxy beyond his bank job. I have always been interested in science and space exploration. And I was watching something on PBS discussing Jupiter and its moons and Europa stood out because the huge ocean beneath its frozen surface that most scientists now believe exists. And they believe that there is more ocean water, more salt water than in all of our oceans combined here on Earth. And I thought, my God, if we're going to find life outside of our planet, this would be the first place to begin with. And it activated my imagination, and that's what prompted me to write a science fiction novel. But this is a different type of science fiction. I call this genre science fiction realism, what I believe could actually be out there in the not-too-distant future. So I read up on it, and everything in my novel regarding the ocean, the geysers that it has, its atmosphere, its temperature, its conditions, was based on reading you know, real science. I thought, my God, this is worth a story. I I do know for a fact from my research that Europa is very much on the radar screen of NASA. They're planning on sending future probes there in the not-too-distant future. It's called um, the Europa Clipper Project. It's being managed by the JPL here in uh, Pasadena, which isn't too far from where I live. In a few short years from now, a probe and a lander is going to explore Europa. My book starts off with the confirmation that there is, in fact, an ocean underneath the surface of Europa. And it starts off here on Earth at JPL, and a mission has been approved at the highest levels of our government to send a submarine below the surface to explore the ocean to see if they can find life. The year is 2068, and we already have a base on Europa, but it's on the surface. The purpose of this mission is to drill below and get into that ocean and to see what's there. And then the adventure goes on from there. So is this an adventure like we're following Jacques Cousteau and what he discovers? Yes, Yes. it's quite like that. It could also be compared to like a Jules Verne, 20,000 leagues below the sea. And another inspiration, a movie made in the 1960s starring Raquel Welch, It's a Fantastic Voyage. They deploy a submarine inside a human body. And that's kind of what Europa looks like to me below the surface. Just a fascinating world with strange creatures and colors fraught with danger. Probably the biggest is it gets a huge, huge amount of radiation from Jupiter. And that uh, impacts a lot of what they can do outside. And it does cause some problems. They have to have sufficient uh, protections and coverings on their spacesuits when they go outside onto the surface to shield them from the huge, huge amount of radiation. Another big obstacle, of course, is the the time that it takes to get there. Right now, it takes about four or five years, but in my time frame, it's speeded up to a few months because of, you know, advances in technology. And it's very, very cold. It's very far away from the sun. And the average temperature is about 250 degrees below zero. So I deal... I deal with all of those issues. For the past couple months, I've been visiting Barnes & Noble stores in my area, 
And I walk into the store and say, hi, I'm a local author. I'm recently published. We're on Barnes & Noble online. Do you have a lot of science fiction readers in your store? Would you be interested in carrying my book? And they almost always say yes. And also, I've been using social media, too, as a platform for promoting the book. All good ideas that, you know, all of our authors should do. But I got to tell you, Jeffrey, not all bookstores are as welcoming as the ones you found. So, you know, you don't know unless you try. Jim Lee was a news director for an NPR radio station. He taught college theater, English, communications. He's been an actor, screenwriter. Now he's writing full-time in New Mexico. Brotherhood of the Streets is his second novel for Page. It's based on uh, composites of people and sometimes actual real people that I knew in Los Angeles back in the early 70s and on the streets of the barrio. It's about uh, two young fellows, about 17 years old, and they don't fit in there. But one of them has a Hispanic look because he's a Native American, and they, sometimes they look quite similar. And But he doesn't have the, the Spanish language or the culture to go with it, so he's an outcast. And the other fellows are transplanted Puerto Rican kid. He happens to be black, but he has a Spanish culture, but he doesn't have the right look. So the two of them are thrown together, and uh, there's some pretty nasty cops that they have to deal with, and some good cops they have to deal with. And it's how they decide to go with their lives. And so it's the era of Vietnam, and the whole idea is uh, be all that you can be without losing the best you can be. It's about, you know, existential validity. It doesn't matter what you come from. It does matter where you go. That's what it's all about. One of these kids is generated as, uh, he's motivated by hope and the other one's motivated by hate. Okay. And uh, coming from essentially the same experience is how they react to it. And there's a crooked cop that won't leave them alone. And there's another cop that thinks he sees something that could be salvaged in them. One of them, one of them ends up being a cop, and the other one ends up being a hitman. From the, coming from the same place, that, that's where they go. I think it's being all that you can be without losing the best you can be. And this is my second novel that a page has done, and I and I just finished the third. And each one is different. Each one is in a totally different genre. I've done some book signings and uh, various groups like Rotary, and I'm in Kiwanis, and I'm a Mason and all that. Uh, and they and they ask me to give presentations and like that, but it, but it's in a very limited area. I have to branch out into the bigger cities. Well, I mean, it's always good to start where you are, and you were a professor. I'm sure you have relationships with, with schools that you taught at, and there's plenty oh, of yeah. college students out there who want to be authors and don't know the mm -hmm. first thing. You know, they have an idea. They don't know how to get started. You know, I would think you'd be yeah. a great resource for a young writer. Oh, I, I would love to mentor some of these young people. I mean, that's what I did for so many years. Right. And, and uh I would really enjoy doing that. Right. Maybe, maybe maybe I'll go back to teaching again at my age. <laughs> there you go. Why not? Everything Paul Hill Juarez has done in his life has inspired him to write, from heading up a bilingual program for elementary school students in California to teaching history and traveling the world. But it was his mom who inspired his book of sunshine and solitude. 
I was very fortunate, and thank God that I had a mother that, when I was 11 and 12, had been told by the doctor that she didn't have long to live, and she spent a lot of time with me, and I was very, very fortunate uh, that she oriented me with uh, what we call in Spanish consejos, advices, and these gems of wisdom I, at first, I didn't understand what why she was spending so much time with me. I loved it because, you know, you're getting all that attention. But in uh, later stages, I realized that she was preparing me for the inevitable heart um, knocks of life that everyone has to go through. And so I kind of thought of the book as dealing with joys and sorrows. That's why the title, uh, Sunshine and Solitude, has a bipolar meaning, and I actually thought of it in Spanish at first. The sol a soledad y soledad, and uh, sunshine and, and solitude, because um, I think that life itself is a series of the dualism of joy and sorrow, which we have experienced in our yesterdays and are about to experience in, in the present reality. You know, it, it's inevitable. Everybody goes through that. But I try in my writing to give the positive. And I don't know, it's been my experience that when we give help and support to our fellow human beings with a compassionate and loving heart, we inevitably also help ourselves in the process. It's uh, unavoidable. The book of uh, Sunshine and Solitude includes uh, a major short story a family story about Santiago, that's the gentleman's name, who is blind and yet is an inspiring and very good person. The setting uh, is in Spain and in Mexico and reflects the rich cultural heritage that both countries have for a strong family unit. And the book also includes five uh, short stories and the reader will learn a few basic Spanish phrases because we, I've inserted those in there. And uh, they can become familiar with some of the interesting cultural traditions uh, like Dia de los Muertos, which means the Day of the Dead, which is a, an interesting perspective that's very different from the perspective here of death and how to celebrate it and honor those that are departed but yet play a vital role in in our daily lives. Although they're departed, they leave a lot of beautiful examples of, as my mother did, of um, the love that they impart to us that has uh, an everlasting impact on us and for which we have to be extremely grateful. Oh, that's beautiful, Paul. What a great tribute to your mom. Thank you. Elizabeth Roberts McGee spent most of her life putting in flooring for her dad's business outside of New Orleans and writing. Her book, Letters from Hell, Confessions of an Addict, is the rest of her story. It's, it's actually about drug addiction. It's a short autobiography, but it's very blunt. I don't hold back in it. And um, all the poems that are in it were written in the, in the depths of you know, pain. And that's why a lot of drug addicts even become addicts, is there's something in their life that it just really hurts, or something they want to forget, or maybe somebody they want to forget. I've been clean for about 10 years. 
Um, and I've gotten over the draw of wanting to go back. And I've met a lot of good people that were addicts. A lot of people that just fell into it, you know I mean? And a lot of people think drug addicts are nothing but bums. Drugs do define you to most people, you know. If you're a drug addict, that's, to most people, they overlook anything else you've done in the past or are going to do in the future. It's more of being tainted. They don't think of it as an actual disease. Starting a book is the hardest part, I realized. The meat of it and the ending of it is not that hard. It's where you start. And so that was real hard for me. So actually, I started back, and, and I told the biggest reason why I, I became an addict. And, it, and later in life, I got the PTSD. And I was, a, I was an addict. I was one of those that would, I would do anything. I didn't have a specialty or a favorite. I, I liked it all. Um, I, I was molested as far back as I can remember. M my mother was married 10 times over my life. Yes, ma'am. And a, a lot of times when you let a strange man into your home, it does happen. It happens a lot. It took me a long time to get over that. And, and I still think about it at times, and I'm 45 years old. Did did you go to your mom and she didn't believe you? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Because, like I said, you know, he was a pillar of the community. He, he had been a policeman and, you know, he upstanding man, and he was at home, making my life miserable. Oh, boy. I used to lay in bed at night when I was a kid, and I would watch the light. You know how a little bit of light would come underneath the, the door of your you know, room you're in? Right. And I would wait to see his shadow, and I'd fall asleep that way, just waiting. I have a lot of poetry in it. Um, it's about half and half. It's half of a confession, my story, and then the other half is poetry. But I wanted to let people know, especially the ones that are in addiction, a lot of people can't even see themselves clean anymore. You know, if you can just lift your eyes up enough to see yourself clean again, you can get there. Rehab is not going to do anybody any good until that person that's an addict decides they want to be something better. They have to want it to change. I want people to give drug addicts the benefit of the doubt. I guess my, my message is this. Love can change a person. Tough love can really change someone. You don't have to love them and let them live in your house or, or, or love them and trust them. That's not it. It's don't give up on that person because if you give up on that person, they'll give up on themselves. Man, that's so true, Elizabeth, and you're proof of someone who never gave up. All right, thank you so much. Authors, time to sign off. Thanks for being here, sharing your stories, proving this uh, writing a book thing can be done. Yes, it can. See you next time on the Reader House Author Roundtable. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. <laughs>